once again to 1 John chapter 5 as we kind of wrapping up now, concluding this last chapter in 1 John together. 1 John chapter 5, this morning we're going to go just from verse 1 down through verse 5, and if you're turned there, would you stand with me as we do out of respect for God's word? As I read our scripture this morning, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who believes, also begot, also loves, excuse me, him who has begotten of him. And by this we know that the love, we, by this we know, if I could read this morning, let's try that again. By this, you pray for me, please. You can tell it's the Spirit of the Lord that does this every week. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And Father, we do just humbly pause to ask for the help and grace of your Spirit to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through what he has already spoken forth in the written Word of God that we're holding this morning. Lord, such a great privilege to worship you, to have the Word of God and we just pray, Lord, against any and all spiritual warfare or weakness of the flesh that would keep us from hearing individually and collectively what it is that you want to say and need to say to us this day through the word of God. We offer our time to you now as an act of worship. Speak to us, Lord, by your spirit. And we pray this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a trait is referred to as that distinguishing quality or that we might say unique, identifiable characteristic of something. And when we think about a trait, of course, we understand the idea of what we often refer to as family traits or a family trait, which of course refers to ways in which perhaps family members biological family members look alike or have similar characteristics or maybe even temperament or personality due to the genetics that they share biologically. And because of that, as well as because of the fact that families dwell together and live together, we can see at times these family traits. They may be obvious in unique characteristics and physical features. For example, because of my wife, I have gorgeous daughters. It's a family trait. That's why I charge so much to my son-in-laws for their dowries, because of that very reason, and a few others as well. But it could be physical features. It could be talents. A lot of times, family members share similar talents or aptitudes. Maybe it's personality similarities or temperaments in family traits that we see, or maybe just the way we do things in a similar way because we were a part of or raised in a particular family, and we can see those things. So I guess it would be fair to say then, what are the traits of God's family? Because the Word of God teaches spiritually that God is a father and that we are children of God or God's children. This passage clearly references that. 
And that is what this section, I believe, is addressing. We might say traits of God's children. The family traits of the spiritual family, those who are truly children of God, clear, identifiable characteristics and qualities that do exist and should exist among those who are legitimately God's children and who have genuinely become, and I'll talk more about that, and I emphasize again the word become, a child of God. And that is something that must happen that brings us into and makes us a part of God's family. These are traits that do and will mark the true child of God. Now, much of what we have seen in 1 John, a lot of the emphasis has been upon having a genuine experience with God. And John really seems to kind of focus in on this spiritual teaching, what that really is. What really is a genuine experience with God? How can we know when we are having one? How can we know if we're really not having an experience with God? How can we tell what is truly of God and not of God? And, and John addresses quite a bit about this, how we can even distinguish and diagnose what's truly coming from God and when someone's having connection with God and an experience with God and maybe when someone is not. And that really seems to me to be what we're going to see here in the fifth chapter that John kind of really drills down on in the, in the conclusion of the letter. And you'll find in chapter 5 here, John readdresses things that he's already talked about in the first four chapters. And he has no problem with spiritual redundancy, has no problem with restating things he's already said, restating truths directly and specifically, as well as in other ways, just restating the same things, maybe just with a little bit different angle and perspective towards those things, instead of giving more understanding spiritually in the sense of new insights or different ideas, as John finishes up his letter, he purposely kind of restates a lot of the same important spiritual understandings. And I think it's because he wants to make sure that God's children are really anchored in the fundamental truths of what it means to have a genuine experience with God, as well as perhaps to give more stability to the life of God's children, and perhaps also as a caution to those who may have been assembling together with those who were genuinely God's children. And they were congregants, but not converts. And that always can exist in any congregation of a local church. There can be people who congregate with God's people, but they're genuinely not converted yet spiritually. And perhaps John in his love as well, knowing this would be read in a public setting, was wanting to as well. No person to be misled of their true spiritual condition. Look at me beginning of verse 1 as John starts now this last chapter. He says there, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So John opens this section here by declaring how God says a human being becomes his child. And very clearly here, we find this phrase, and we find it used in the word of God, but we find this phrase used by God, because again, the spirit of God gave us the word of God. And so this is a phrase God picks and chooses to describe, we might say, a biblical Christian, a true child of God. Because like any other term that gets thrown around a lot, even the term Christian, people label themselves a Christian. And, and so but what is a biblical Christian? And it's a sad almost kind of that we have to say that, 
But what is a biblical Christian, a Christian according to the Bible, the word of God? Here we see what a real true Christian is. He uses this term in verse one. Look at it there. Those who are born of God. Those who are born of God, someone who's experienced a spiritual birth from God. Even as a person is born physically, the Bible teaches, God says, a person must be reborn a second time. They must also be born spiritually. And this phrase, born of God, we find John likes it because he uses that phrase, born of God, seven times in 1 John. And he uses it numerous times just in this last chapter here. But seven times he likes to use this phrase to define God's children, those who've been born of God. And notice that phrase, we need this to happen to become a child of God. In fact, some translations, you may have a different translation. I use the New King James. Some translations render that phrase there instead of born of God, they, they render it those who become a child of God. And I think that's insightful. Those who become a child of God, the idea is something has happened that they became a child of God. In other words, they weren't. They've become a child of God. Something transitioned. They went from being in one condition, being transformed to become a new thing. And again, the Bible teaches that though God gives life to all human beings, God's the creator of life. And God is the creator of every human life, and we don't deny that and the value of every human life, but we don't start out as children of God. We start out created by God, but not necessarily as those who are children of God. At some point, the word of God teaches we must become a child of God. We become a child of God on a particular moment in time when we have a spiritual birth experience. The scripture teaches that due to the effect of sin entering into the human race, that we are all born in a condition where though we have physical life, we do not have spiritual life. We all possess physical life, but because we are born under the influence of sin, which every human being is, we are born separated from God and alive physically, but technically dead spiritually. That is, we don't have an experience with God when we are first born. That's something that must happen, and that's why we need a spiritual birth, a spiritual birth where we come alive to God and to a relationship with God and become connected to God's family and then can share in the things of the kingdom of God that are eternal. And that does not happen through just trying to be a religious person. It happens, the word of God says, by being born of God. And Jesus himself was the one that stated this. John just stole that idea from Jesus. He just stole the idea from Jesus. Of course, many of us know the very familiar story in John chapter 3 that precedes John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What was Jesus talking about? Well, he was having a conversation with, catch this, a very religious man, an extremely religious man named Nicodemus. The beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to someone who knew Bible verses, who was a religious individual, went through all the religious routines and exercises. He was worshiping among the people of God routinely. 
He was someone even to some degree, it seems, had a role of spiritual leadership, and yet he realized something's still missing in me. And he sought out Jesus. And as he began to seek out Jesus, because he realized something's missing inside of me, Jesus, perceiving his lost, spiritually dead condition, said to Nicodemus, most, Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, that's what you're looking for. And I'm trying to help you understand that using these terms of being born again, you got to be born again. Nicodemus, of course, like you and I, thought as a natural, how can a man be born when he's old? Can, does he enter back into his mother's womb a second time? And he was thinking logically, and Jesus answered, saying, most assuredly, I say to you, uh, he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, I'm not asking you to experience a second physical birth. That which is born of the flesh and is physical, that's fleshly. You were born once physically. Through the breaking of the water, you came through the womb of your mother, and now you experience the physical life and physical realm in the flesh. Well, in the same way, the only way to experience a different dimension, a spiritual dimension, and a relationship with God and that which is eternal, eternal life and spiritual things, you got to have a spiritual birth. You must be born again. There must come a spiritual birth experience to become alive to the things of God. So the question then becomes, well, wait a minute. If Jesus said the only real Christian is a born-again Christian, and again, people used to, I'm this kind of Christian, that kind of Christian. Jesus used the term, you must be born again. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only way we refer to Christianity because in John chapter 4, remember, Jesus spoke to a woman at the well, and he said nothing about being born again. So it's not semantics. We're not harping on a word. Jesus told her, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But I have water that'll be like a wet. And he talked to her about water and a thirst spiritually. So it's not the terms. It's the reality that we must have a spiritual birth experience. And the question then would become, well, if that's true, and Jesus said that's what's necessary to have a relationship with God and to enter into eternal life with God in heaven, how does one experience that spiritual birth. Well, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit knew you would ask that because look what he says in verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So how are we born again? How is a person born of God? Well, he says right there, they believe that Jesus is the Christ or we might say the savior. That's how someone becomes a child of God through properly understanding and choosing to believe who Jesus truly is. And John has talked about many things about the life of Jesus of Nazareth from him being the son of God. Here he refers to him as the Christ. The Greek term there is the Christos, the anointed one. It was the Greek term for the Hebrew understanding of the Messiah. That is the savior, the deliverer. In the Old Testament, God made it very clear that his people needed salvation and that he would become a savior and that he would send a deliverer. He'd send a promised one into the world that would come and deliver mankind from their sin. That's why when Jesus was born, he was referred to as Christ the Lord, the savior, the anointed one, the, Mas the Mashiach, the Christ, the Christos, that he was the one who had come to fulfill 
what God predicted and was sent to be the savior of all, to set people free from sin's punishment and its power to control their lives. And so John here speaks of this very reality. In chapter 4, John had just said, we saw last week, that the Father sent the Son of God into this world, he said there, to be the Savior, and that Savior was Jesus. And so John here just builds back on that same point again, that as we believe what is true of ourselves, and that's the first step, to believe what's true of ourselves, that we need a Savior. And the reason is because we're sinful. And we're all guilty before God, and we, we don't present to God a righteous, sinless life. We present to God a life of failures and mistakes and our sin, like stain on our clothes. It makes us guilty and unacceptable to a holy, righteous God in a perfectly pure heaven. And so as we believe and understand that we are guilty and sinful and that we need to be rescued and delivered and spared by someone, and then we realize spiritually that someone to spare us from sin and the judgment of sin which is eternal torment in hell, is Jesus the Savior, the Christ, the one who was sent to do such, as we believe that, and not just believe it, but we put our full reliance upon it in such a way that we receive Jesus and what he has done for us by exercising our faith to receive that in a personal way, the Bible says that is how the spiritual birth experience happens. That's what brings about that spiritual experience of conversion where we receive the eternal son of God. John chapter one, John declared it this way, referring to Jesus. As many as receive him, that's Jesus, God gives the right, or he might say power, to become a child of God. And he says, not through a natural birth, but through a birth that comes from God. So this is what must happen, and this is what does happen to make someone a child of God and now we see, as John goes on, he begins to describe, as I said, some of, we might say, the family traits of God's children. Those who have been born of God, those who are children of God, these are some identifiable traits or spiritual birthmarks of God's children. He says in verse 1, going on, everyone who loves him who begot or who gave birth, that is God the Father, also he loves him who is begotten or who's been born of him, that is, of God. So notice in the remainder of verse 1, here are two very clear family traits of God's children, of those who are part of God's family, evidenced by those who truly know God as their father and who have now become a child of God. We see two very clear family traits. The first one is very obvious in verse 1, that those who are born of God and God's children will love God. There will be a love for God within your heart. He says here that his children, those born of God, love him, that's God, who begot them. That is who gave birth to them. Even as a natural child innately has love for their physical father or their physical mother, children innately have a love in their heart for their parents in the same way that's true of the spiritual child. The child of God will innately have a love for God as their father because he has given birth to them and become their spiritual father. After salvation through Jesus, as a result of being born of God, we find this new love for God in our heart that was not there before. And all of a sudden now we have this love for God that makes us want to please God. 
makes us want to make our Father proud of us and make our Father in heaven be honored, and, and, and no longer do we want to displease God, and we don't want to dishonor God. Now we want to live in a way because we love God that we make him proud and we bless his heart and that we do things to bring pleasure to him because we appreciate God and we care about him now from within our heart. The child of God knows that experience of loving God. Remember John said last chapter to those of us who are children of God, he said, we love him because he's first loved us. We love him because he's loved us and we've become his children. We now love God. Psalm 116, the psalmist says, I love the Lord for he heard my voice and he heard my cry for mercy. Again, there's that phrase. I love the Lord, the psalmist says. He heard my cry. He saved me. He delivered me. And now I love the Lord because of that. That's a child of God's experience. It's a family trait that you love God. That also means this morning this, that if a person does not love God, it's because they don't know God. They may have thought they knew God or they may say they know God, but if they don't love God, it's because they don't know God yet. Because a family trait of those who know God is they love God. They're just not yet a child of God, and therefore that's why they have a greater love for themselves more than they do God. Or a greater love for living like the world does because they're still a part of that spiritual sphere and they've not yet become a part of God's family yet. So a family trait is that we love God. And another family trait we see there in verse 1 is we don't only love God, but God's children also love God's other children. He says there in verse 1, we don't only love him who begot us or gave birth to us, we also, God's children who are born of him, love him or her who has been begotten of God, those who have also been born of God. And again, the reason is in the same way from that natural analogy. Siblings, biologically, because of their biological connection, they may fight. Yes, they do. I've raised three. But they have a love for one another innately, right? And there's this natural love and bond among family. Well, the same is true spiritually on a much deeper level. As God's children, when you truly become a child of God, you all of a sudden, in a whole new way, realize you have a spiritual family, brothers and sisters, and there's this innate love there for other children of God. John's going to say later in this chapter, we know we pass from death to life spiritually because we now love the brethren. And I can completely rid of that. Before I was a Christian, I didn't love Christians. I didn't want to go hang out with Christians on the weekend. That's what you're doing right now. I wanted to do other things. I wanted to hang out with my people out in the world. But when you become a child of God, all of a sudden, one of the ways you realize something happened is you start loving other children of God. And you have this connection and this interest to want to be with the rest of the family of God. And again, John has kind of talked about this subject repeatedly, even in the book here. In chapter 3, verse 14, he said there, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. There it is. That's how we know. We pass from death to life. He just said last chapter, as we concluded our study together, someone says, chapter 4, verse 20, I love God, but then hates his brother, that is God's children, he's a liar. He's lying to himself because you can't love God and then hate your siblings. God said, wait, that's not how it works in my family. Any good father wouldn't let that go on. And he's saying, I, if I'm a, a spiritual father, that's not going to be the case. So a family trait 
of God's children is you love other children of God. And you want to be with God's children because you see them as your family. You're like, this is my eternal family. And nothing wrong with blood family, but many of us would attest to the fact that many of us, we have closer bonds with our spiritual family than we do our own biological family. Because there's a thread that runs deeper, sometimes even in blood, it's called the spirit of God. It's called an eternal bond that's there because we realize that we'll be together with God in heaven forever. Now, let me just say on the other side of that before I move on, if a trait of God's family is you love other people in God's family and you should be encouraged by that, that means you're part of the family. That also means this morning, let me just say in love that if you don't love God's family or you don't care to be with God's family or you kind of have no interest with the eternal family of God, your soul's not in a right condition. And so therefore, such a person might want to do a little deeper inventory. And let me say, please be aware spiritually. If you like people in the world more than you like Christians, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. And John would want us to know that as the Spirit's directing him to say these things. Look at verse 2. He says, and by this, we know the love, know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So notice John kind of here uses, I guess you might call it circular reasoning as the next trait or family trait among God's children. That is where multiple things he's saying, they kind of all connect in a circular way and work together. He speaks here in these next set of verses about both how we can go about loving God's children and how we can check that we're loving God's children properly, as well as, again, how we can show we truly love God and how loving God's children is one of the ways that we actually show God that we love him. We do this in a spiritually practical way by walking it out. Notice two times the repeated phrase in verse 2, as well as in the beginning of verse 3, John restates twice, because we keep his commandments. That is, we are following what God commands, observing what God instructs in his word, as well as what God commands and directs us to do by his spirit that lives inside of us. Again, I think give a little bit more light here. Some other translations render this section this way. This is how we know that we love God and his children, by carrying out God's commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Another translation renders it this way. We know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. Loving God means keeping his commandments. So notice, the scripture teaches love for God and love for God's children is demonstrated by a life of obedience to God by desiring to obey God and what he is telling us to do. That is a trait of God's children. Another family trait to know that you've been born of God, a family trait of God's children, is they are those who seek to live obedient to God. They seek to obey the commands of God, to follow the word of God, to do what God asks and instructs. So in God's written word, that's a family trait of God's children. They want to obey the word of God. They want to read it and study it and learn it because they, hey, if that's what my father is telling me to do, I love my father and I want to obey my father. 
And so they want to obey the commands in God's word. And they will live in such a way, even if it takes faith or self-denial, to say, I want to obey what God commands, not how I feel, not what I think, not what people are telling me to do, not what the, you know, everybody else's perspective on the matter is. No, what does God's word say on this matter? Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? That's how I'm going to live my life. And they want to obey the word of God. And they also want to obey, of course, the spirit of God, which is another way God commands you and I as Christians. His spirit dwells within us and the Holy Spirit living within us. He speaks to us. He tells us what to do. At times he asks thing of us and he gives us directives and we obey the commands of the spirit within us. And we follow the spirit's leading and do what he asks us to do. And we demonstrate love for God by obeying what he says, both in his word and obeying what he is saying within us and commanding us to do by his spirit and understanding that one of the highest ways, he says here, we can show love for God's family. He says it right there. We know we love God and love his children when we're loving God by keeping his commandments. So one of the highest ways I can show God I love him and one of the highest ways I can show God's children that I love them is living obedient to the word of God and living obedient to the spirit of God and what he commands me to do as far as how I'm living out my life. So whether it's how I'm relating to God or how I'm relating to you as God's children, I'm not to be led by my feelings. I'm not to be led by my thoughts. I'm not to be led by, well, what happened between us, so therefore I'm going to react this way rather than responding biblically or under the spirit of the Lord's command and directive and say, yeah, I'd like to behave that way or I'd sure like to say that where I'd sure like to do this, but I'm governed by the word of God. And so the authority of the word of God, says, so that becomes very important because sadly too many times I, it, it, it breaks my heart. I watch Christians do certain things and justify their behavior and their actions. And I'm thinking, you're living in direct violation to something that this isn't a gray matter. This is the word of God is right there. And it says this, and yet you are just disregarding. It's almost like, well, that section doesn't apply to me. We don't want to live like that. He says, those who are God's children who love him, they keep his commands. We obey the word of God. We should be growing in that area. I'm not saying any one of us ever does such perfectly, but our life should be characterized by that. The child of God, their life should be characterized as a family trait that they are obedient to God's word and that they seek to keep growing in that way, and they seek to be obedient and keep growing in that way to be obedient to God's spirit, and that they're learning to walk in the spirit and not by their flesh or by their feelings or other things. And so let me say as well, as that's a family trait of the child of God, let me also say again, if there is no interest in a person's heart or in your heart to obey the word of God, that might be an indicator something's not right in your soul between you and God. Because if our heart is in a right condition, a family trait is that we would want to live according to the word of God. And if you don't want to obey God or his word, that's a real warning sign. And speaking of God's commands, look what he goes on to say the end of verse three. He says, and God's commandments, notice, are not burdensome. So speaking of God as, again, a a good, wise, loving father, that's what he is, right? And he gives commands to his children. Notice he says, God's commands that we want to obey, he says his commands are not 
burdensome. That is something, the term there is that which weighs a person down like a heavy load that's hard to bear and walk under. He says the word of God, the commands of God from his word and through his spirit are not going to make a person feel like they're under a miserable load. It's not going to weigh them down with heavy burdens. In other words, it should never be, oh, it is such a burden. It is so hard. I mean, man, it's so hard to deal with. I mean, it's just, God's word is just dragging me down, man. Oh, it's just, it is so, bur- I got to follow the Bible? Oh, that's a, oh my goodness. It should never be like that. He says the commands of God are not burdensome. See, because a family trait of God's children, and to me, this is another family trait of God's children, they don't see God's commands as a heavy burden. God's children don't see his commands as an unpleasant, burdensome load to live by. Instead, they see the value of God's commands, and they follow God's commands in a heart of gratitude and in a heart of understanding that God knows way better about life and living than I do. And so I'd rather follow his way because for a while I was doing life my way, and it wasn't working real well. And so if God's got a way, it must be a much better way. And so a true family trait of God's child is they don't see God's commands as burdensome. And listen, that's a true reality, whether we agree with that or not. God's commands and his word were never intended to be a human burden. The word of God was never intended to be a burden. Rather, God's word provides to us supernatural wisdom and a healthy blueprint how to live life well how to live life best and to, to be healthy and prosper and, and to be able to experience the absolute best of a human existence to avoid pain and additional problems and self-inflicted wounds, right? Life's already got pain and problems. I don't need self-inflicted problems. I don't need to add more regret into my life and more mistakes. And again, God's given us his word not to burden us, but to give us a really good blueprint to live life the way God intended us to live life as human beings, to experience his absolute best, to give me instruction how to have a healthy life, a blessed life, a stable life, relationships that are good. And when God directs me by his spirit and he guides you by his spirit, it's never intended to be a burden, (laughs) The Spirit of the Lord doesn't want to burden you and make you feel weighed down. He wants to bless you by helping you keep on the right path. And when the Spirit of the Lord commands me to do something or he asks you to do something in a particular situation, it's not to burden you, it's ultimately to bless you. It's ultimately to get you on a course that you will be the most blessed and to direct your steps so that you don't wander or misstep or self-destruct. And look, that is true as well, that they're not a burden because God, does he not? He gives us a new heart. In the same way we love God and we love his children, all of a sudden one of the clear traits of a child of God is you have such a grateful heart towards God saving you that you want to live God's way. And so when I first was born again, I didn't say, oh my goodness, I hate school and that's a big book. When my friend led me to Christ and I got saved and I was overwhelmed with the love of God and the grace of God, and, and, and again, I came from a blank slate, and then he told me what this was, I wasn't like, man, that's a big book. Instead, I was like, you mean that's how God's going to talk to me? That's how God's going to tell me? 
how to live for him now and to live better than I've been living. And, and that's how God's going to speak to me and I'm going to hear it. And it wasn't a burden at all because my heart was in a different condition now. I didn't find it burdensome to read the Bible or to want to live according to the Bible. I found it a delight in something I wanted to do. You know, we, again, in our study in the book of Psalms on Wednesday evening, we went through the Psalm 119, that longest Psalm, longest chapter, in fact, in the entire Bible, Psalm 119. And the psalmist just repeatedly spoke about all the wonders of God's word. And one of the things that he said in there repeatedly, he said, God, how I love your commands. Love your commands, Lord. Remember, he said, because they give me guidance. They're my counselors. I don't have to pay a counselor anymore. I got counselors. I got 66 library books, supernatural counselors, better than any counselor from any professional. And Lord, your word, it's like it restrains me and it guides me. It's like a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. And again, the psalm is just, I love your word, God. And as a child of God, that should be our heart. In Romans 7, Paul described how he delighted in the law of God and the inward man. And I believe this is what Jesus as well meant when he talked about how spiritually we should never be living a life spiritually where we feel like our life is a burdensome thing. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke upon you is easy and my burden, Jesus said, is light. Listen, Jesus was calling people who were under the burdens of all these legalistic religious people who were saying, well, if you're going to be spiritual, you got to do this and this and this and this, and you can't do this. And, you, and Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I just want you to live in relationship with me and to live in a way where you follow me out of love and walk with me. And Jesus said, my yoke on your shoulders, he said, it will be easy and the burden will be light, not overwhelming, crushing, and burdensome. And look, I say that this morning in connection to John saying here that God's commandments aren't burdensome because if you ever feel in your spiritual life that you are living under such a heavy, burdensome load to be a Christian or to follow what the Lord is leading you to supposedly doing, can I just say you may be under a yoke that's not from the Lord. Perhaps you're under the heavy yoke that someone else is putting on your shoulders and trying to burden and weigh you down with, and maybe you need to say, you know what, I'd rather take Jesus' yoke. Don't let people put a yoke, no pun intended there, uh, on you. And people will do that inadvertently. Just, here, you should do this, or you got to do that. No, you walk under the yoke of Jesus. You yoke up with Jesus, and that he will give you the grace and the power to do what he's leading you to do. And don't put a yoke on your own shoulders. Sometimes we do that too. We put these burdens and yokes on ourselves, and we feel so, oh, man, it's just so, and sometimes in those occasions, maybe we're walking under a yoke and a burdensome thing that's not from the Lord, and we've put that on our own shoulders, and maybe Jesus is saying, look, it's not burdensome to follow the will of God. It's something that he bears with us, and this morning, let me just say again, before moving on to the next two verses, as I have been, if you're here this morning, and you are someone who finds it burdensome to live according to the word of God. And you just, you find, oh, what a miserable thing, that Bible, all these, all the things it says, so, it's so miserable. 
Let me just say, if you look at the word of God as a miserable burden, please, you may want to search your heart. You may want to search your heart. If you're someone who, who says, oh, man, I just, I, these, oh, the Bible and these, oh, the stuff it says, what a drag, man, such a burden. It holds me back, man. It's restricting me. That Bible restricts me from living how I want to live. Perhaps the reason your heart is saying that is it's a revelation that the problem is you still live according to the way that people in the world live who want to live the way they want to live and not the way God wants them to live. And you might want to evaluate where your heart's at because God's children obey the word of God because they love God, they love his people, and they don't see his word as burdensome. They see it as a privilege to live the way that God knows is best for them. John says, verse 4 and 5, with another family trait here, I believe in these last two verses, for whatever is born of God, there's our phrase again, God's children, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes, John comes back to these same things again, that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's another, if you would, final family trait of God's children. They become overcomers in relation to the world. When I say the world, of course, the Bible's talking about that sinful system of the world that has rebelled against God and is living without God and all the struggles that go along with living in the world system that God saved us and brought us out of into his family. God's children, the Bible says here, become overcomers while still living in this present world. And the word overcome defined is to succeed in dealing with a problem or to prevail over a challenge. The Greek term that John uses here, overcomers, is the Greek term nikeo, where we get our English phrase we see on some of these very expensive sneakers nowadays, Nike. It means to conquer, to be a conqueror. And that's the term that John uses here, to overcome in a battle, to be victorious in a struggle. He says God's children they're victorious. They overcome in the world by faith through Jesus Christ who they're in a relationship. That's a spiritual birthmark of God's child is that we are overcomers in things as we live in this world. Rather than being people who are overcome by things and who live defeated by things as God's children, we endure through things. We have battles like everyone else but we obtain victory because God's children with God's presence in their life become overcomers. Through our faith and our reliance upon him, by believing in what's right and following what's true, we experience victory over the battles of this world. And John here again refers to believers once again as those who are born of God and who he says, verse 5, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And one of those wonderful traits of being joined to Jesus as the Savior, is we experience the victory of Jesus our Lord. And what did Jesus say of his own experience? John 16, Jesus said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, be encouraged, I've overcome the world. And so the benefit of being a child of God and being married to Jesus, the Son of God, which makes God our Father, is that because Jesus has overcome everything in this world and all of its problems and all that are wrapped up in that, we, through being married to Jesus, we overcome through his victorious life. 
We overcome through his help as we walk with him and his life gives us that victory. And consider, if you would, perhaps specifically some of the ways Jesus overcame this world and how through being joined with him, we overcome in this world. If I could mention a few, Jesus overcame the problem of the guilt of mankind's sin. That's a really good thing for you and I. Jesus overcame the problem of the guilt of mankind's sin that requires us to be punished in torment and hell through what Jesus did in his sinless life, in his sacrificial substitutional death, in his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. That accomplished work of Jesus victoriously resolved the problem of the guilt of sin. Romans 3 says that all sin and the whole world is guilty before God and deserves punishment. John said to us earlier in this letter in chapter 2 regarding Jesus, he said Jesus is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins and not just for ours, but for the whole world. And so because Jesus has done that through trusting in Jesus, we receive the benefit of being to overcome the guilt and punishment we deserve for our sins. We overcome sin's punishment coming upon this world through what Jesus has done for us. Jesus said in Revelation 3, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but confess him before my Father in heaven. Jesus also overcame sin's power. The Bible tells us he was tempted in all points as we are in his body of flesh as a man, but he never yielded to sin. He never committed any sin. He refused sin. He resisted it. He obtained victory over the power of sin. He overcame not just sin's punishment, but he overcame sin's power. And he conquered that. And now through being joined with Jesus, the Bible teaches we can overcome the power of sin to control us. That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about in those three chapters. How through being joined with Jesus and his victory over the power of sin, now through united with Christ, we can experience the same power and the victory over sin. Paul there says, referring to sin, instead of continuing in sin, Paul says we can walk in newness of life, a whole new way. We should no longer be slaves of sin. We don't have to let sin reign in our mortal body that we obey its lusts, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because Jesus overcame the power of sin. And through Jesus, we have the opportunity to be able to overcome the power of sin. God's children, folks, overcome the power of sin that conquers people who are struggling with sin in the world. God's children can overcome those things. God's children, by the power of God as a Christian, have the ability to overcome such. Look, this morning, let me just say, by way of application, what struggle with sin are you struggling to overcome right now in your Christian life? Let me just say, perhaps you are doubting that you could ever overcome. And on the authority of God's word and his truth, let me say, are you going to listen to the lying voice of your feelings and the lying voice of the devil? Or are you going to believe what God says, which is that you can overcome? by faith and through the power and the authority of Jesus Christ who overcame sin's power, letting him help you to overcome. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free 
shall be free indeed. You can overcome that struggle through Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are an overcomer, experience God's overcoming power. Jesus also overcame physical death and the power to make one fearful of dying. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. It says that Jesus swallowed up the power of physical death in his victory through his resurrection. And because of that, Paul says, thanks be to God now who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus overcame the power of death to give us assurance that though physical death happens, it's not a dreaded enemy. It's now just a vehicle that transfers us into eternal life with God. And so as a child of God, we overcome the fear and the threat and the horror of death because we know after death, we just overcome that death process and inherit eternal life. That's the benefit of being a child of God. And Jesus overcame the devil, the Bible teaches, and all his spiritual powers. John's going to say in the next chapter that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But John said earlier, Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the wicked one. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over the devil and his wicked powers upon the cross. And that's a wonderful thing because that means for you and I, though the devil will work his schemes and he will bring spiritual warfare and he will attack us and assault us, the wonderful thing, what did John say? He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. You can overcome the devil's tactics. You can overcome the devil's schemes because you have the overcoming power of God within you. And so as God's child, you can overcome those things. And finally, we know also Jesus, in a generic sense, just overcome, as he said there in chapter 16 of John, Jesus said, I, I overcame the world. And think of this world. Because of its fallen, broken, sinful condition, what's a part of this world that's rejected God? Struggles and sickness and hardship and problems and all the difficulties that go with living in this world. Look, as a child of God, we can overcome all the struggles of this world in a way that people who don't know God are dealing with all the same hardships and they're being overcome by those things. And sadly, so many people in the world are living defeated lives and they're overcome by tragedies and hardships and struggles and difficulties. And what God is saying is what conquers people in the world, it doesn't have to conquer my children because my children can overcome those things. They can overcome through me. And they don't have to be defeated and overcome. Instead, they can overcome because they're my children. Hey, what might you be facing right now that is trying to defeat you? That's trying to overcome what God is doing and wants for your life. Let me say this morning, by faith, trust God, obey God, obey his word in that situation, and you can overcome. Just watch. You can overcome. You don't have to live a defeated life because you can overcome as God's child. Let's stand together and let's pray.